Joseph was 30 years old when he was made ruler in Egypt. David was 30 when he finally uh, became king over the entire nation of Israel. We are going to reign with the Lord. And we also know Jesus himself entered his earthly ministry at the age of 30. So I kind of think that we're going to be around 30. And um, God is going to just keep us there. You know, I remember the 30s. They're becoming a, a dim memory. Oh, to go back, you know. But, you know, it says that, you know, I make all things new. Verse 5 tells us. Now, we know that God, by this time, will have already made us brand new. When? The rapture, right? At the rapture. When we are raptured, we are going to receive our glorified bodies. We are going to be made perfect physically. I mean, we're going to be totally made brand new physically. But God still needs to make the rest of creation brand new, the inanimate creation. We know that the creation is still under the curse, and the curse won't be lifted until we end the millennial kingdom and enter into the, into the eternal state, right? Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to read you something. Romans chapter 8, because Paul talks about this. I want to look at verse, starting at verse 18, where Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Don't ever forget that. As times get increasingly more difficult, and they will, don't ever forget that these light afflictions that we're suffering right now, no matter how bad they seem, they're only momentary, are working for in us a far more eternal uh, and glorious weight of glory. But they're not to be compared, not worthy to be compared, Paul said, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, that is the redemption of our, what? Our body, right? For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Paul says, look, we're not there yet. We're hoping for this day. Now, for us, it's the rapture. That's when our bodies are going to be redeemed. Our soul has been redeemed already. We're a new man, created in the image of Christ, inwardly. But outwardly, obviously, this, these bodies have not been redeemed yet. They are of the earth, are going to someday wear out and go back to the dust of the earth, unless the Lord raptures us. But he is going to 
change these bodies at the rapture. Those that have died in Christ will be resurrected, instantaneously glorified. Those of us who are alive on the earth when the rapture happens will be caught up immediately to meet the Lord in the clouds, and we will go through that instantaneous metamorphosis where this mortal will put on immortality and so on. So at that point, we are going to be made brand new, but the creation is still going to be groaning under the weight of sin. And Paul kind of personifies creation as if it's a person groaning under the weight of all the, you know, stuff going on, the pollution and the decay and all that creation was subjected to. We think that the sin, that sin in the fall just affected humanity. It affected the whole universe. What was the universe like before the fall? We don't know, but it affected everything. We know that the Garden of Eden was an incredible place. We know that Adam and Eve probably didn't look anything like they do t- they did after the fall because the Bible says they were clothed with light. They were, they were light beings. I mean, come on, it must have been a different place than Earth is today because, you know, you have a serpent walking up to you and he did he did walk at that time started talking with you and adam and eve was not shocked by that it indicated that probably you know maybe all the animals of the garden spoke however when sin entered into the creation not only did man fall but so did the creation and paul says the creation is groaning and travailing it's waiting for the birth of something brand new the eternal state behold i make a new heavens and a new earth. And in that state, the curse is completely lifted. So when Jesus said, behold, I make all things new, at that point he was talking about the creation in general, even though we ourselves had already tasted that perfection at the rapture. Now, he said in verse 5, once again at the end, and he said to me, the Lord speaking to John, write for these words are true and faithful. We have to remember now that even though we are transported through John's eyes into the eternal state, that John was still physically on the island of Patmos, out in the Aegean Sea. He was going to be released very shortly from that place because God had one last important task for John, and that was to write this book. Once John wrote the book down, he was to go back and distribute it among the churches of Asia Minor. Many think John was the bishop or the overseer over that whole area that Jesus dictated the seven letters to, which was modern-day Turkey. So the Lord is saying to John, John, you've got to write all this down. See, we're looking at the eternal state through the eyes of John. All of a sudden, the Lord just says to John, John, you've got to write all this down. You've got to put this in the hands of my people. They have to know this. That someday, and you're talking about a struggling church for the most part, that someday all the struggles and strife, all the pain and problems that they've experienced all their lives, it's going to be over with. I'm going to make all things new. All the problems, all the pain, all the heartache will be done. And all that's going to remain is the peace and the love and the joy and eternal satisfaction of fellowship with the Lord. All the negatives will be gone. I'm going to wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There's going to be no more sorrow, no death, no pain. Nothing negative at all. And so John, uh, the Lord says, John, they need to know this. You know, and it wasn't just the church in Asia Minor. We have all been blessed by this book. Because although it does lay out some pretty horrific things that we know are coming, ultimately we know that it's all going to lead to Christ's return and eventually the eternal state, heaven. And that's 
the inheritance that Peter talked about that is waiting for us, incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not, reserved in heaven for all of us, that place with God. But you know, Jesus said, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words are what? Never going to pass away. Heaven and earth are someday going to be gone in their present state, and the Lord will recreate them brand new. But his word will live forever. The promises he's given us, a lot of it's going to be fulfilled through redemptive history. Once God ties up all the loose ends of redemptive history, those things will be fulfilled. Not passed away in the sense that they won't be um, valid. Of course, they're going to be valid because they're going to be already fulfilled. God is going to fulfill those promises. But then all the eternal promises given to his church, they will remain forever. And so he said in verse 6, John said, and he said to me, the Lord speaking to John, it is done. It is done. Now, someone might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say it's done from the cross? How many times does it have to get done? I mean, you know, I'm confused. Didn't Jesus from the cross say it's done? Well, he actually said it is finished. In the Greek, the word is telestai, which literally means paid in full. But to understand this, we have to understand that our salvation takes place on three different levels. Now, you've heard me talk about this. Some of you might not have heard me talk about this. Our salvation takes place on three different levels. First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 2, verse 8 tells us, this is the, it is finished from the cross. That's what was accomplished by Christ for us to be saved, right? So we have been saved from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Those of us who received him as Lord and Savior, we're not going to hell. That's the penalty of sin. Unless, of course, somebody took our penalty for us and Jesus did it on the cross. So that's done. There's nothing left that has to be done for you to escape the penalty of hell. Hallelujah, right? I mean, I, I feel sorry for those Christians who are being taught, well, he actually meant it's almost done. You've got to finish it by how you live. If you don't live the right life, if you don't measure up, you could, you, you're going to still go to hell. That, that to me is a very sad uh, teaching. Because Jesus said it's finished. It's done in that regard. He paid the price. He did the work. We have been saved from the penalty of sin because we've received Christ. Secondly, we are being saved from the power of sin. This is all about sanctification now, right? We are being saved from the power of sin. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 tells us. Right now we're redeemed as believers. We're saved. We're not going to hell. But once you accept Christ, the penalty for your sins is instantly taken care of. Paid in full. But now you enter into a lifetime of sanctification, right? Every day as you walk with the Lord and draw close to Him and, and are filled with the Spirit, God has given you the strength and the grace to resist sin and temptation more and more. But that process will not be complete until when? The rapture. As John says, when I'm raptured, when I finally see Him, I'm going to be like Him. I'm going to have a perfect glorified body, and sin will have no more power over me ever again. So I am being saved from the power of sin, but that it is done. That will be finished or completed when the rapture happens. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has what? 
begun a good work in you. That was the moment of salvation. That work began. He will continue the work and complete it until the day of Christ. In other words, when the day of Christ comes, when the rapture happens, that work will be complete. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, the rapture, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. All right, so we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. Thirdly, we will be saved from the presence of sin someday. Now that is the it is done of Revelation 21, verse 6. We know that because chapter 22, verse 15 tells us, but outside, outside of what? The New Jerusalem, heaven, right? Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Yes, where are they all? In the lake of fire, right? I mean, they're really outside, in the outer darkness, somewhere so far, probably in the remote re recesses of outer space that no light even penetrates out there. As compared to the golden city, which we're going to study tonight, that just radiates with light. They are, they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God wanted to save them. He wanted to fill them with light. They would have none of it. And so God gave to them what they desired. God honored their free will and they were cast into the lake of fire at one point. All unbelievers at this point are in hell. So, so the presence of sin now we have been going to be saved from. That is the it is done here of Revelation 21 verse 6. Now, at the end of verse 6, Jesus went on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We know that Jesus is speaking here because this is exactly how he opened this epistle, didn't he? Chapter 1, he called himself the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He goes on to kind of interpret what he's talking about when he goes on to say, the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end. In other words, when Jesus called himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, not only did this identify who he was to us, but it also identified him with God. Because in the Old Testament, the first and last and the Alpha and Omega, uh, these are clearly titles belonging to Yahweh, God Almighty. Turn to Isaiah 41. You show your Jehovah's Witness friends this. You know how Jesus called himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and then you take him to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 41, and, uh, you know, it says in verse 4, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. And then in chapter 44, verse 6 of Isaiah, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and is who? And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And you'll ask them, well, if Jesus called himself the first and the last, and in Isaiah God called himself the first and the last, isn't Jesus God? No, he's another first and last. Well, how many first and last can you have? There's only one first and one last. Beside me, God said, there is no God. I know of not one, he said. Now, Job's witnesses have Jehovah as Almighty God, and Jesus is a mighty God, but lesser than Almighty Jehovah God. 
Well, you got at least two gods right there. We are not polytheists. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. But in that one God, there are three separate and distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why it's the tri-unity of God, the Trinity. But these are words that not only tie us back to the beginning of Revelation, where we know the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking, but also ties Jesus back to Jehovah of the Old Testament because he is the God of the Old Testament as well as the God of the New. And he went on to say here at the very end of verse 6, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Turn to John 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4, you all know it. Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman by a well up there in Samaria. And um, he asks her for a drink. She's come to the well to draw some water. He's sitting there. He says to her, can I have a drink? She was shocked. She said, you being a Jew are asking me, a Samaritan, for water? You have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus said, well, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water. And she said, well, sir, the well is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. How are you going to get me that living water? And he said in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that, if you drink of the water of this well, you will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course, Jesus was using a physical thirst to teach a spiritual truth. He, always, he often did this. She was thirsty. Physical thirst is one of the survival drives that God has given to us as human beings. I mean, the air drive, the water drive, the food drive, the sex drive, the sleep drive, these are all very important and very powerful drives. They're necessary for the sustaining of life, correct? Well, the thirst is something that we all understand. I mean, when our body thirsts, we need to give it something, we need to give it water. Water is life. Without it, we die. So she comes looking for a physical drink of water, and Jesus uses the opportunity to show her what she really needs because he knew that she had been married and divorced five times, was not living with a guy. So she had a thirst in her soul. She was trying to fill a void with human relationships. A lot of people are trying to do that. A lot of people are trying to fill a void with materialism or with you know drugs or alcohol. People are trying to stuff that emptiness inside full of a lot of things. The Bible says, though, that God made everybody with a God-shaped void, and you'll never fill that void with anything but a personal relationship with the Lord. And that's what she needed. I mean, she was like so many that we see today, thirsty in their soul, but they don't realize it. Trying to satisfy it with material things, even with human relationships, doesn't work. And so Jesus told her, look, what you really are thirsty for in your soul is living water. Only I can give you that. And if you do drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. He was talking about the gospel. He was talking about eternal life, likening himself to living water, eternal, the fountain of living water is what he was, okay? And if she would drink of him, believe in him, then he would fill her heart and she would never thirst again. Well, John chapter 7, we read how in verse 37 it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, this would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, 
Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, you have to understand something about the Feast of Tabernacles. It, it commemorated the time when the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, right? And as they wandered in the wilderness, which was a desert, they got awfully thirsty. And God would give to them water out of a particular rock that seemed to follow them. How weird would that be? You're walking through the desert for a couple days and you set up camp and you look and there's that rock. Isn't that that rock? Everywhere they went, the rock was not far behind and God used it to give them water. Paul talks about this. The rock that followed them in the wilderness. That rock was Christ. Well, it symbolized Jesus, right? Well, when they came into the land, of course, God gave them a well-watered land. They didn't have to live in tents anymore. And so they, started, they, they commemorated this time with the Feast of, of Tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, it was an eight-day feast. The first seven days, uh, they would um, uh, have a, a gathering on the Temple Mount there, and they would, uh, would sing and pray. And at one point, as the band was playing and the trumpets were blowing, the priest would march around with a pitcher, would take it down to the, the brook down there in the Kidron Valley, uh, and they would scoop up water, take it back up to the Temple Mount, and would pour it out, signifying that God gave to his people water to drink during the, their time in the wilderness. On the eighth day, the great day of the feast, there was no procession down to the, the spring of Gihon, is what it was, the spring of Gihon, down in the Kidron Valley. There was no procession. Why? Because it signified how God had brought them into the promised land. They didn't need to have him provide supernaturally anymore out of the rock. So it says in John 7 on the last day, the great day of the feast, about the time when people were thinking how that God brought them into a land, a well-watered land. He didn't have to miraculously provide for them out of the rock and so on. Jesus jumped up onto a high place, it says, and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And the idea was the rock that you drank from in the wilderness, that satisfied your physical bodies, but it spoke of me. The one who would come eventually and satisfy the thirst in your soul would offer you eternal life. Well, in Revelation 22, verse 17, the last invitation of the Bible, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Listen, the invitation to be a citizen of heaven is offered to everyone. The only prerequisite is that you be what? Thirsty. Thirsty. And by that I mean nothing on this earth satisfies. Not wealth, not relationship, not fame, not pleasure, not possessions. The only thing that can quench the thirst in your soul is God. You know it. You've tried all the other things. Like the woman by the well, she know, she knew that Jesus was right. She had been down that road a lot of times. She knew that no, these relationships were just not doing it. She was thirsty, and it wasn't for anything she knew how to satisfy, and that's why he came, because he wanted to tell her about the living water that only he could give. See, salvation is open to anybody. It's, a, it's a, an offer to all humanity. But you can't have the attitude of, well, okay, yeah, all right. I wouldn't mind that, as long as I can still have all these other things over here. As long as I can still drink from the wells of the world, I don't mind tasting some of that living water. Hey, I'd like to go to heaven. See, it doesn't work that way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the righteous is what? They shall be 
fulfilled. See, we have to come to a point where we recognize that we really need God. He's not the frosting on the cake of life. He's not the soup or the salt in our soup. The additive that we kind of just, you know, sprinkle onto our lives to add a little flavor and so on. No, he's got to be our life. He's got to be our life. And somebody who simply wants to add Jesus to their life, there's a lot of people that want to add Jesus to their life. They don't hate Jesus. It's called religion. They want to add it. You know, just give me a little Jesus. That He makes life sweet. I just don't want to give him control because I want to be in control. You're not thirsting. Now, if you've ever been really thirsty, all you can think about is what? Well, you're not thinking about water and the vacation that you planned. I mean, if you're on a desert and you're dying of thirst, I guarantee you the only thing you're, you're thinking about, it's consuming your every thought. It's a desire for water. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for